Now, the first lesson in our series on kings, we covered kind of the whole biblical gamut of Elijah. We traced him in the biblical theology all the way from Old Testament to New to New Testament, and last week we kind of we looked at the uh, historical, the the worst of times, and we went through the history of these judges that, le- or the history of the kings that led up to the time of Elijah. And what I want to do today is do one more kind of overview sweep of the uh, of the spiritual climate that was in the time of the judges, or t- I don't know why I keep saying judges, times of the kings. And so just to give you a little overview of that, uh, we won't, this is all first and second kings. We won't go through all of it, but we'll look at the part that's relevant for us, and it'll just kind of give you the big picture. So let's, let's take a look at that. The books of first and second kings, Although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is brave breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. 
The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son Rehoboam acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor, and under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David, and now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be. Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf—it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about twenty successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people, and did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for twenty, and then in southern Judah, only eight out of twenty get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers; rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable.、And、the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet, living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so, in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice, and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his. Right there, that gets us、uh, a good overview of where we're going. Now, I love、uh, this is from the Bible Project. And、uh, it's part of the app, Read Scripture, that we recommend on our website. I'm using the app、uh, to read through the Bible, but I do want you to be aware that there are some uh, doctrinal uh, things to be aware of that aren't uh, uh, biblical or definitely not keeping with what we would believe. And you see one of them in this when he talks about the prophets of Israel. He says they're not fortune tellers, and he just focuses on their preaching aspect. Well, no, they're not fortune tellers like you go and read my poems. But they are predictors of the future, and so the little subtle things like that that you need to be, watch out for. But I hope that that gives you a good overview of where we're headed. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him to prepare our hearts to dive into His Word. Father, we thank you for Your grace to us. Thank you for the Word of God, which establishes Your rule over our hearts, so that You can bring blessings to us. 
so that we can be blessings to others. May we learn about the war of the worlds that is taking place all around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings 16. Now, in your notes, last week, as you saw in the video, Elijah was able to remain loyal even in the worst of times. So I gave you a little review of that. You kind of have the chart of the two kingdoms. He remained loyal uh, in the worst of times, and it was the worst of times because the idolatry of Solomon had divided the kingdom, as you saw. And King Jeroboam, which we call Jerkoboam, because he's the rebel king of the northern kingdom, he had led... Uh, Israel into heresy where he created those bull idols and then called them Yahweh. This is the Lord your God who led you out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so it resulted in this really depraved northern kingdom. And as you saw, there were seven kings and the worst of the worst. The king that won the biggest sinner contest was King Ahab who ruled in the days of Elijah, and his apostasy just really devastated that kingdom. And so, just as a reminder from from last week, and just a reminder for us, sin will always take you farther than you want to go. Solomon never realized, he never dreamt that his sin would have such lasting uh, impact, 83 years, and be so devastating. It will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And so this idolatry, this heresy, this apostasy, it led to instability. If you look at that chart, Northern Kingdom had seven kings in the time that the Southern Kingdom had only two. Sin brings instability, and it's monotonous. As you read through this portion of Scripture, it's like, King rises, king reigns, king sins, king dies. King rises, king reigns, king sin, king dies. And you just go through this. How many of you read Kings and you're like, this is boring, right? I mean, it's just names and it's just repetitious. It's a lesson in what sin does in our lives. It creates chaos of instability and it creates Boredom of a cycle of just bondage, right? And then finally, it just creates greater sin. And so here's what happened, and here's what I want you to see for today. That all this rebellion, this depravity, this apostasy, resulted in a war of the worlds between Team Baal in this corner and Team Yahweh in this corner. So that's what we're going to see today. We're going to... Look at Team Baal and Team Yahweh. And that is LORD in all caps in your Bibles. Okay? So, this is a war of the worlds between Team Baal and Team Yahweh. Now, what do you think of when I say war of the worlds? The movie with who? Who? 
Tom Cruise, yeah, Tom Cruise runs in that movie. Tom Cruise runs in every one of his movies. Tom Cruise deserves an Oscar for running. What else do you think of when you think of the War of the Worlds? Future that comes. What, did you realize it once was a book before it was a movie? H.G. Wells, it was a great scientific movie. And the War of the Worlds was a war between what two worlds? Anybody know? Yeah, we think of just aliens. Martians! Martians were invading Earth. So it was a war between Martians and where... But the most famous is the... uh, Or one of the most famous aspects of it, this was written in 1897 by H.G. Wells, was the radio broadcast, War of the Worlds. It was on the radio in 1938, directed and narrated by Orson Welles, no, no relation to the author, And it went out, and they said at the very beginning of this radio broadcast, it came out as news bulletins. It was 60 minutes long, and the first two-thirds, two-thirds of it was breaking news bulletins of these Martian invasions, right? And even though they said this is not real, people believed it was real, and it caused panic. In fact, some say a million people ran outside their homes in terror. Other people say it was no more than 50 people, and the newspapers at the time had exaggerated the, the panic because they were trying to attack radio as a news medium. Okay, so here's the bottom line on that. There was fake news before there was fake news, right? It was fake news. But here's the, here's the reality. It was fake news that many people considered to be real. The radio program was not real but it was taken seriously by some. Well, I want to tell you, the war of the worlds here is between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And the sad truth is, this is not fake, it's real, but few people take it seriously. So in 1938, they had something that wasn't real that was taken seriously. Well, we've got something that's real here. The war of these two worldviews, kingdom of Satan, kingdom of God, team Baal versus team Yahweh. And yet very few people take it seriously. Now, in the story of Elijah, the climax of this war of the worlds, as you saw in the video, comes in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah faces off, Elijah representing Team Yahweh, faces off 450 prophets of Baal, and they're going to decide whose God can call down fire from heaven. You'll see why that's important here in a minute. And in 1 Kings 18.21, this war of the world views is summed up by Elijah when he says these words to the gathered Israelites on Mount Carmel. How long, how long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? If the Lord is the true God, then follow Him. But if Baal is, follow Him. But the people did not say a word. And so this morning, I want to introduce you to Team Baal and Team Yahweh and give you an overview of these two worldviews, the way they viewed the world and the way Team Yahweh views the world. And then next week, we'll dive in and start moving through the story of Elijah. So let's begin, and we're going to concentrate on Team Baal because the rest of our series will explore Team Yahweh. So let's look at Team Baal. 
And Team Baal is comprised of, uh, think of it as a football team. King Ahab, he's the owner. Queen Jezebel is kind of like the player coach that's really in charge. You've got the false prophets are like the quarterbacks. And then you have the vast majority of disloyal Israelites who are the members of the team. So let's dive in and let's look at King Ahab. Now, King Ahab, we saw last week, is an apostate. I want to focus on his apostasy was he was a covenant breaker. He was a covenant breaker. So Ahab is the king. He's responsible for Team Baal. And he is apostate and a covenant breaker as a king of Israel. And I'm take you through the outline that we looked at last week. But this week I want you to focus on how it breaks the covenant that's laid out for us in Deuteronomy. So let's look at this. Uh, you're there in your Bibles in 1 Kings 16. Look at verse 30. Here you see how big of a covenant breaker was he. Look at verse 30, chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And so let's kind of break through the, the, the rest of the verses. 30 through 34, tell us how he was a covenant breaker. First of all, he enjoyed winning the biggest center contest over all the kings. We just read that. This breaks the covenant of Deuteronomy 17 for what a king of Israel was supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 17, if you read those those verses, the king of Israel wasn't supposed to be the biggest covenant breaker He was supposed to be the biggest covenant keeper. He was supposed to keep the covenant, model that, and lead the people to do that. Now, how do we know that? Because in Deuteronomy 17, what the king was supposed to do is he was supposed to sit down and in the presence of the priests who would make sure he he did this correctly, he was to hand copy the entire five books of Moses. Now, this is, there's not publishing back then. This is a big deal. You're talking, you know, writing and papyrus. This wasn't an easy thing to do. But what was the idea? The, there's something, and we need to be reminded of this in a digital age. There's something about writing for, something about writing things down for yourself, taking notes, even in our class, that the mind and the hand and the paper instill things in the heart. And so he was to write by hand the entire uh, book uh, from uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and have his own personal copy. Now, why was that? Not everybody had a copy. He had a copy because he was to be a covenant keeper and not a covenant breaker. Ahab blows through all that. Second of all, Ahab married Jezebel, who was a pagan princess, and priestess of the false god Baal. We'll see more on her in a moment. But in verse 31, it says that she he marries Jezebel. Yet in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, it says that the king, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Now we know Solomon broke that. But here we see Ahab broke it, and in marrying Jezebel, she not only turned his heart away, she caused him to walk away. 
and become an apostate. Number three, he not only married a Baal worshiper, he totally became one. He totally became one. And this was the ultimate step of breaking the covenant. So turn your Bibles. We've been talking about Deuteronomy. I want you to see this. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. And I just want you to see the blessings that he forfeited. Deuteronomy 28. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Okay? 1 through 14. Israel and her kings were not supposed to become like the surrounding people groups. They were to remain loyal to the Lord, live set apart holy lives, be like the Lord, so that then they could be a blessing to the people groups around them. And as long as they became like the people around them, they were no different and of no use and could not be a blessing. So let's look at this. Deuteronomy 28, let's begin in verse 1. Notice what it says there in your Bibles. Now, it shall be, and this is Moses, God speaking through Moses to the children of Israel before they enter the promised land. Now, it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then it goes through these blessings. Blessing shall, shall, shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. It doesn't matter. The whole land's going to be blessed. Blessed shall be your offspring of your body and the produce of the ground and the offspring of your beast, your family, your flocks, your crop, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. You'll have plenty of grain and plenty of bread. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. That's military. When you go out to fight, you're going to have success and you're going to come back victorious. The Lord, and we see this in verse 7, we know this is military. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and they shall flee before you seven ways. They'll be scattered. But look at verse 8. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. And he will bless you in the land, in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now look at verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you. If you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by my name, by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, your beast, the ground, in the land in which the Lord has sworn. And then it ends in verse 14. And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. 
And Ahab had written or was supposed to have written that out by hand. And he walks away from all of that. And all those blessings are torn away and ripped away from his kingdom. In the end, number four, back in your notes, he led his entire kingdom into spiritually defying the Lord. And if you go back to 1 Kings again, you see in that last verse 34, that idea of rebuilding Jericho. And why was that so big? Well, that was a defiance of a specific promise where anybody who rebuilds Jericho is going to be cursed and it's going to cost them the lives of their firstborn and their youngest. And Israel is just full of themselves. <coughs> I thought about this. It'd be like you sitting your kids down and say, kids, I love you. You can stay in our home. I love you, but you got to obey the rules of the house. And they say, I love you. I'll obey the rules of the house. And then they proceed to do anything they want. How's that go over in the house? Things don't go well. It produces instability. It produces a cycle of rebellion. It produces bad things. This is exactly what's going on. So, notice in your notes, under Ahab, as a covenant breaker, the people of God, the people of Israel, deny the character of the living God. They say, hey, we treat him as dead. We treat him as a nothing. We can deny his existence. And we're going to run after lifeless, dead idols that we create. They defy the commandment of Israel's God. They defy the commandments. Uh, and they start living like unbelievers. They're like, here they have the word of God provided to them, the very words of God, and they're living, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do. They don't read it. They don't love it. They don't live it. And then they despise the covenant of their promise-keeping God. Because here's the thing. God's promising, I'm going to bless you in your obedience, and I'm going to curse you in your disobedience. And they're like, nothing's going to come of that. Nothing's going to come of that. And, you know, we kind of do the same thing. We come and we hear God's word, and we hear the promises of God, and we say, yeah, I know, but I'm going to live another way. And we think that somehow we're still going to be blessed by God in spite of our unbelief and disobedience. And so what happens is, in Deuteronomy 28, you have these blessings and you have these cursings. But the cursings are especially about God withholding rain. It really comes down to this idea of rain. And let me take you one more time to Deuteronomy 11. Because I want you to see this is all rooted in the promises of God. So go back to Deuteronomy 11. We just read Deuteronomy 28 where all these blessings are going to come on the land. There's going to be prosperity. There's going to be crops. There are going to be flocks. And there's going to be lots of babies because things are going good. But in Deuteronomy 11, look at verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinance, and His commandments. In other words... Don't be covenant breakers, be covenant keepers. But drop down to verse 8. And here's what happens. Listen. You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may strong, be strong and go in the land, 
and possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, so that you may prolong your days in the land and not be exiled, which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land in which you are entering to possess, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. What's he talking about there? He's talking about irrigation. He's saying you would use your foot to move and navigate the niles of the water. There was this abundant water supply that would never go away, and all you had to do was do a little foot digging and a little kicking around, and you could channel that water to your crops. That's not what it's going to be like in the promised land. In the promised land, it's basically a land of desert, and unless the Lord brings rain, you die. And that's what the rest of it says. But the land in which you're about to cross to possess... A land of hills and valleys drinks water from the rain of heaven. A land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today to love loyalty, loyalty and obedience out of a love and a faith. To love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, that He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. But look at verse 16. Beware that your hearts aren't deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So here's what I want you to see. This is all a part of the covenant. So when we come to Elijah, Ahab is this covenant breaker. What should we expect to happen to rain? It should quit raining. And when it quits raining in the promised land, what happens to the crops? And what happens to the flocks? They die. And what happens to the people? They die. And guess what? When... Economic times are bad. People, you know, have less children because they know they won't survive and they can't provide. So that's what's going on here. That's all because of Ahab as a covenant breaker. But Team Baal also includes Queen Jezebel, the aggressive Baal worshiper. So you have Jezebel, who is the aggressive Baal Worshipper. So not only does Ahab turn away from the Lord and break the covenant, he has the gall to marry the most wicked woman on the planet. And it was her aggressive efforts that took the northern kingdom into Baal worship. So he was like the owner of the team, but she was like the player coach. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a quick overview 
of Baal worship, okay, so you can get an idea of what it's like. Because we're going to encounter it in the rest of our study, and it's kind of good to see. Let's hear six facts about Baal worship. Number one, the entrance of Baal worship. When did it enter the land? Okay, the entrance of it. It didn't start with Jezebel. Baal worship was a, a Canaanite cult religion that had been in the land before the kings of Israel. Actually, even before Israel entered the land, there was Baal worship. And so you can go back and study that. The Israel first encountered Baal worship on the plains of Moab right before they were going to enter the promised land. And if you remember the false prophet of Balaam got the children of Israel to embrace the immorality of Baal worship just on the, on the cusp of them entering the promised land. So this has been with Israel for a long time. In fact, in the time of Judges, it got really bad in the times of Judges. And if you remember the Judge Gideon, one of the first things that God called Gideon to do was, Gideon, I want you go and destroy your dad's altar to Baal, your village's altar to Baal. And it was so bad in the time of Judges that Gideon, and he was so scared, he destroyed the altar in, at night. The Baal worshippers wake up in the village, uh, the Israelites. They wake up and they see their altar is destroyed. And they're like, who destroyed our altar? I mean, they're all freaking out because they're so loyal to Baal that they're upset that someone destroyed Baal's altar. Okay, so you can read about it. It's been there at the entrance. And let me say this about Baal. He was also a local god. So every city had their own. So you had the Baal of Kansas City. You had the Baal of St. Louis. So everybody could have their little... Lo it was like a franchise. Okay, So you franchised out this false religion. And it was Baal, but it's our Baal. Okay, So you got all these local, all these local gods that are all called Baal, but each one's slightly different. And so when Jezebel married Ahab, he brought, she brought the Baal from the, the land that she was from, Sidonian or Phoenicia. All right, number two, what's the essence? Here's where I want you to really see. I want you to see the essence of Baal worship. What was it made of? Okay, what is the essence of this? Because if you don't understand this, you won't understand how cool the rest of the story of Elijah is. And so let me give you five words to describe it, okay, so you can write these down. First one is multiplicity. Multiplicity or polytheism. Baal was just one of many gods, okay? So Baal was not even the main god, all right? Uh, in fact, he was the son of the main God. The main God was by the name of El. So this is like the son of God. Do you see the, the heresy of this? So you got Baal as the son of God, but there's many gods, all right? So he's one of many, and he's not even the main one. Secondly, uh, you can think of the word fertility. He was the God of fertility. Okay, he was a fertility god. So they had all these gods, and each one was a specialist in something. And for Baal, he was he had the power of fertility. 
And uh, he was a fertility god because he was seen as the god of rain, storms, lightning, and clouds. Do you see what this is going to develop in the story of Elijah? Who can bring down fire? Who can bring lightning? Who can bring rain on the land? Well, it's supposed to be Baal. So why are we going through a three and a half year drought? Good question. Good question. Here's some of the names of Baal. He was called Lord. He was called Victor, Prince, Ruler, the Most High, the Lord of the Earth. He was called the Storm God. He was the rider or the charioteer of the charioteer of the clouds. Hey, how was Elijah picked up by God in a fiery chariot? See, everything that the true God is is going to be countered. Everything's going to be countered. He was also uh, considered the Lord of rain and dew. And he was also considered a healer. And that's going to be very significant because God's going to use Elijah to raise the dead and to heal a leper in these stories. So the third word I want you to think is prosperity. Prosperity, because the God of fertility, who could bring rain and could rule lightning and weather, would bring prosperity to the land of Canaan, which I've already told you was totally dependent on rain to be fruitful. So Baal was not only a local god, this one of many gods, a local god, but he was also a seasonal god. Now, this is very important. So here's the deal about Baal. If Baal brought rain, well, during the rainy season, that's good. those are good times for Baal worship because it's raining. He's the god of rain. But what happens when the rains go away and winter comes and everything dies? What happens to Baal? Well, here's what they believed. One of the other gods had killed Baal. So when it's raining, Baal's alive. When it's not raining, we got to explain what happened to Baal. Well, another god killed him. And then when the rains come back, another god brings Baal to life. So he's not only a local god. He's not only one of many gods. This guy's a seasonal god. He's not even around all the time. And he goes through this endless cycle of life, death, life, death, life, death. And he's dependent on other gods that can kill him and can raise him to life. And one of the gods that raised him to life was a female goddess. And she would bring him to life. They'd have sex. And that would spread prosperity to the land. And if you wanted to get in on that prosperity, you would go to the altar of Baal and have sex with the male prostitutes and the female prostitutes. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism. You would participate in that immortality with the representatives of the gods that would get the gods to have more sex to bring more prosperity to the land. I'm sorry for the crudeness, but that's exactly what it was. And so the, the word, uh, I, I missed this one, you can put down mortality because the, the god dies, okay, mortality, because he dies in a seasonal manner. But the fifth word I want you to write down is immorta- uh, immorality, immorality was woven into the worship of Baal. So here comes Jezebel, who brings in this this worship of Baal, who is one of many gods, into the land of the one true God. 
who is the God of fertility, promises prosperity, I'll control the weather, I'll bring prosperity. The only problem is I'm on this cycle of I die seasonally, but keep having immoral sex and participate in what I'm doing up in the heavens and there will be good prosperity in the land. That's the essence of Baal worship. And 1 Kings 14.22 tells us this, that it wasn't just the northern kingdom of Israel. It was going on in the southern kingdom of Judah. Listen to 1 Kings 14.22. Judah, southern kingdom, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins they had committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars in Asherim. Asherim was the female goddess. So when you worship Baal, you would build an altar to Baal, and then you would create this pillar next to it to the goddess Asherah. And those two are the ones that had sex up in the heavens to bring fertility and prosperity. And so you would go and have sex with the temple prostitutes so that your family could be blessed. And they would build these high places on mountaintops to get closer to the gods. And wherever there was a lot of trees, they were trying to reinvent the Garden of Eden. Remember the temple in the video represented the Garden of Eden because where the presence of God dwells? Well, they're creating these little Edens where they get naked and, 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 and have sex with the gods. Now, you ought to be a little repulsed at what you're hearing. Now, if you're a little repulsed, just think if you are Yahweh and your people who are called by your name, who if you have empowered to live in a place with your presence are doing this in the broad daylight in defiance of you. This will not end well. This will not end well. And so, what happens is, and we haven't even gotten to the time of Jezebel yet, number three, the eradication, the eradication of of Baal worship. So, all this is going on in Israel until David shows up. And David, being a man after God's uh, God's own heart, gets down to business and cleans house. And he all but eradicates Baal worship out of Israel, north, south, the whole Israel. So David eradicates it. And that's why as you read through the kings, listen, as you read through the kings, every king is measured by David. And the the issue is, are you tearing down the altars of Baal or are you building them up? Are you eliminating the pillars to Asherah or are you erecting them? Because David was a man after God's own heart, and he eradicates. Now you come to the explosion. The explosion of Baal worship is a result of this marriage. So it was all but eradicated, and then you get this big old explosion with the daughter of the king of Sidon. And more than likely, as we're going to see, She was the daughter of the king 
of, it's often called Phoenicia, it's on the coast. And her dad was called Ethbel. In other words, her dad was not only the king, but more than likely he was also a priest of Baal. This means uh, his, basically means his god is Baal, okay? I'll just make it easy. And so his da- her dad was like the king of the land and the high priest. So here she is. She's like a preacher's kid, false preacher kid. So she's like a, a priestess and a princess. And she's devoted to this stuff. And she brings the explosion. Now, what happens is with her is the extent of it. With this explosion, the extent of Baal worship is deep in Israel, it's wide and it's enduring. It will take years to reverse what Jezebel and Ahab have done. And then the last thing I want you to see is her goal is nothing less than extermination of Yahweh worship. Her goal is to exterminate Yahweh worship. So she's come in, she's married Ahab, and she said, you guys had a little Baal worship in your past. That crazy guy David, he eradicated it. I'm here to have an explosion of it, and I'm going to exterminate everybody on Team Yahweh. And she does. She goes out, and she intimidates Team Yahweh. She persecutes Team Yahweh, and we're going to see she goes about killing the prophets who make up Team Yahweh. Now, to do that, what she does is there's another part of Team Baal. You not only have Jezebel, but you have false prophets. I'll just put them here. So Team Baal is also made of false prophets who are agreeable, lying deceivers. Agreeable, lying deceivers. Because what these false prophets do, they do and say whatever Ahab and Jezebel wants them to say. In fact, they're on the payroll. They're on Jezebel's payroll. So you don't bite the hand that feeds you. And so these false prophets say, what do you want me to say? I'll say, that's what God says. And they are the deceivers of God's people. And then finally, you have the vast majority of Israelites on Team Baal who are apathetic fence-sitters. They're apathetic fence-sitters. In other words... They're here in the middle, and they're looking at Team Yahweh, and they're looking at Team Baal, and they're just sitting on the fence. And that's why, that's why when uh, Elijah says, if God, if Yahweh is, is God, follow him, and if Baal is God, follow him, and the people don't say a word. They're apathetic. Yeah, yeah. Baal, Yahweh. Many roads to God. Everybody's got their opinion. I don't want to get upset. I don't want to upset my family. I don't want to upset my friends. I don't want to be attacked on Facebook. 
I'm just apathetic. I'm a fence sitter. Fence sitter. And so they're just sitting on the fence. Now, that's Team Baal. Here's their worldview. Let me just sum up their worldview. Their worldview is a lifeless God that cannot speak and cannot deliver on His promises. Lifeless gods that cannot speak and cannot deliver on their promises and following them will only bring down curses of the one true God. That's a false worldview. That is Baal's worldview. Team Yahweh, here's their worldview. We serve the living God who speaks living words and He always keeps His promises. And when He promises to bless... He blesses. And when He promises to judge, He will judge. Come to Him. Love Him. For He loves you. And He loves to bless you. He's a living God who speaks living words that bring blessing so that you can be a blessing to the people around you. Now, this is the war of the world. And everybody sitting here today... Just like me, we all have a choice to make. Are we going to be in the kingdom of Satan? Or are we going to be in the kingdom of God with Team Yahweh? Okay? So let's take a look at it. So on Team Yahweh, you have Elijah, Elijah, and Elisha, his disciple. I'm sorry, I say those horribly. So you got them. And then number two, you've got the true prophets. You've got the true prophets. So over here... Team Yahweh is led by Elijah and later his disciple. And it's led by true prophets. And instead of saying what you want to hear, here's what true prophets say. They only speak when God speaks and they only say what God says. And what they say always comes true. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 17. True prophets of God only say, only speak when God speaks, only say what God says, and what they say always comes true. So in 1 Kings 17, 1, that we're going to look at next week, next week, 1 Kings 17, 1, Elijah appears and says, well, let's look at what he says. Look at 1 Kings 17.1. Because 1 Kings 17.1 totally obliterates everything I've written here. Everything I've written here in one verse. One verse. Look at 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, think promise keeper, Yahweh, the promise, keep, the promise maker and the promise keeper, the God of Israel, the one who has given you the covenant and given you His commands, lives. He's not lifeless. He's not dead. Nobody, no other God can kill Him and no other God raises Him. He is life. Before whom I stand. I, I'm on Team Yahweh. I'm putting you on notice. I'm on Team Yahweh. You're on Team Baal. Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Why could Elijah say it? 
because his word was the word of Yahweh. And Yahweh, we're going to find out, he's the Lord of the earth. He's the charioteer that rides on the clouds. He is the one that controls the rain. And guess what? He's not dependent on the seasons. If he says rain, what does it do? It rains. And if he says not rain, what does it not do? Rain. And he is a holy God. And you don't manipulate him by immorality. You don't control him by superstition. You don't manipulate him. You submit to him and you love him. For he created you and he loves you. And he wants to speak blessing into your life so that you can be a blessing to others. So I end here with the small but loyal remnant. There was a small, and we'll meet them. And you know what's interesting about the small and loyal remnant? They're not all Israelites. Some of them are Gentile pagans who hear of Team Yahweh and they join Team Yahweh. We see the Great Commission in the life of Elijah. You see, God, listen, listen, listen to me. God didn't call you to be his child. And he has not blessed you to keep the blessing for yourself. He has called you to be a blessing to others of every ethnicity, of every tribal group. And that's why he has blessed you to be a blessing. Isn't that good? So I've got four applications there. You can look at them. Here's the reality. In the end, Team Yahweh is a team of one. Who's really Team Yahweh? See, the question is, are you not on the team, but are you in Yahweh and is Yahweh in you? In other words, do you know Jesus? Because Jesus is the one who keeps the covenant for you. It's Jesus who will enable you to remain loyal in the worst of times. And we're going to see those lessons as we move on. But there's four applications for you. And why don't you just take those this week and think through them? Persevere in a living faith. Persevere in loving obedience. Persevere in trusting Scripture because it's, it, it, it's powerful and it will come true And then persevere in discerning error. We don't want to be a part of Team Baal. And we don't want to be influenced by it. All right? I hope this was helpful to you. And here's what we're going to do. The rest of, of, of our study of Elijah is going to play out what it means to be a part of Team Yahweh. But today, I just want you to leave with this. Just leave with this. Which team are you on? And realize Team Yahweh is a team of one. Jesus said, I am Yahweh. If you're in Him, and He is in you, you will be a covenant keeper. And you will be blessed to be a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. I know we're. this is a vast story of spiritual warfare. It began in the garden, and it's raging, raging right here. In 2019, it's raging in in our hearts. And Father, I pray every person would take some time this week to get alone with you and recommit 
and realize that we need to be in Jesus and Jesus needs to be in us so that we can be on Team Yahweh and so that we can be covenant keepers instead of breakers and that we can be blessed to be a blessing to all peoples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we've got to come up with a cheer for Team Yahweh. And we'll kind of practice that. <laughs>